Hi, everybody. Welcome to November's installment of Blue SciCon. I'm Jacob Huckmissera. Thanks so much for joining us. This is the podcast that features the ideas, research, and philosophies of the members and friends of the Blue Marble Space Institute of Science. If you'd like to learn more about our institute, you can check us out online at bmsis.org. And to listen to previous editions of our podcast, you can go to bmsis.org slash podcast. You can also search for us on iTunes. Uh, so thanks again for joining us. We have Haritina Mogusanu, our own Hari, joining us today. She is going to be talking about a master's project that she's been working on, on uh, institutionalization and securitization. Um, specifically, she's looking at the role of institutionalization in space research, um, looking at NASA as a case study. So Hari, thanks so much for joining us. It's a really fascinating topic. Greetings from New Zealand, and thank you for inviting me, and hello, everyone. So what got you interested in this topic to start with, thinking about, you know, you're thinking about NASA and an institutionalization. You know, what does that mean? Why are you interested in it? And, and can you just help us unpack this a little bit? Um, I really love space. And I think humankind should become a spacefaring civilization. But I think it takes more than rockets to go out there. It takes vision and, and it takes system thinking. It takes a, a whole village, as they say. To, to go out in space, and I have seen this when I first went to the Mars Desert Research Station in Utah, and we were there, and people from from all culture, all colors, all religions, but most important from all sciences, and not even sciences, arts and, and literature, and it, it, it was just a humankind in a in a nutshell. And I realized then that, that there is more than just a rocket to, to take us out. You have to have vision, you have to have ideas, and you have to have this know-how of how society works at large to, to be able to, to go to space in, 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 in what we are. So that's kind of like prompted my research. I see. And so one of the interesting distinctions uh, that I noticed was you talk about institutionalization and you compare that to securitization. Now, they're not exact opposites, but how do these two factors contribute to uh, how an organization like NASA developed? Well, I think we, we first need to kind of step back a little bit and define both these, these terms because they're very complicated and people use institutionalization in very different ways. Institutionalization, the way I use it here, is kind of like what do we do, what kind of, of rules and norms and regulations we're following in order to achieve a goal. And there is a definition that I quite like which says that institutions are kind of like rule systems of interaction between, between people because people create institutions. And, and so a lot of people talk about institutions and they refer to bureaucracy. And, and that's not what I, what I had in mind. What I had in mind is this, this overall very high level definition. And an example of an institution is, for instance, here in New Zealand, we're, we're driving on the left hand side of the road. And 
that's an institution. I mean, people can drive on the right-hand side of the road, but then it's, you know, um, their choice and it's not good. And so the, the state here supports driving on the, on the left-hand side of the road. Another example of an institution is marriage. So you can, you can choose to be married, and then, again, there are a set of rules and regulations and law that support this institution. And my favorite example is English language. Now we ended up all speaking English, so English is, a, is an English language is an institution, institution as well. And so th this is the, the high definition, and then institution is there to, to support dreams and ideals. And, and then securitization, it's, uh, a, a, again, a very interesting definition because in this day and age, we talk about securitization at level of state. So, so both these two terms are very high-level definitions of the problem. And so what I think it is the difference is where institutions bind. You know, you've got all these rules and you've got – first you have someone – dreaming something or someone finding out that some things are easier that way. So like I find it easy to, to speak the language, English language, because I can read more papers that are written by all people around the world who, who, uh, who are speaking and writing in, in English language. So then I choose to do it. And this is the great thing about institutions. It, it, it's probably my favorite thing. It's that it gives you the choice. So once you're part of an institution, you have the the choice to do a thing rather than, than something else. And, and so, so you're kind of like in a, almost like in a scenario where you're limited by your choice as well, but that's also empowering because everyone else who chooses to do the same thing as you, they are supporting you in that journey. So then going to your question, uh, institutionalization and securitization, they're kind of like, if you wish, the, the, uh, like the plus and minus um, in, in sciences, right? Because institutionalization is binding. So we're, we're creating these rules and we want to follow them. Whereas securitization, it's climbing, it, it's just climbing, because that, that, that's very cool here, the right to break these rules. So when you go for a war, you are claiming the right to, to break the rules that um, that are, are in function at that moment, so then you, you can do the work. And both are ideal. You know, both, both institutionalization and securitization are are in, in the in the realm of of ideal. They're they're both having discourses. So it's how how you convince people at the end of the day to adhere to one or another. Okay, so. So let's think about, I guess one thing that helped me think through this a little bit is the, the history of how we even, how humans got involved in space through, you know, the space race in the context of the Cold War. And you make some interesting comparisons between uh, the development of the American space program and the development of the Soviet space program. Uh, so what I took away from that is, is the Soviet space program is, is was a little bit more secretive in some ways and wrapped up more in this idea of securitization, whereas perhaps one of the reasons NASA has more long-term success is this more public appeal in its process of institutionalization. Is that a fair characterization? Yeah, uh, it's, a very, it's a very good characterization. And, and I grew up in a communist country, Romania at the time was a communist country. and. 
nobody who was not in the military could could accede to space research. It was just no way you would have done this kind of research if you were not in the military. And everyone knew that there is space research in my country, but everyone was keeping it secret. You weren't talking about it. It was reserved for the very, very few. And so imagine that I was, it took me years to get my head around on how NASA operates and how the United States are, are, are um, operating in the space environment because it was something I would not, I didn't understand. And we, we, we're, we can kind of like almost um, go here in a, in a discussion about biases and, and how humankind perceives it. But this is what happened to me. It, it took me a long time to understand how the other people um, the free world is operating, and I can tell you, I can tell you this: Soviet Union, Romania, all countries of the communist bloc—they were all doing space in secrecy. People were not publishing papers. Like you know, can you imagine this? We have these, these so many papers in science published in uh, in the U.S. about space and in the free world, right? And Scientists are talking to each other and they're, they're, they're having interesting conversations. Now imagine in the U.S., U.S. had to keep everything under the most terrible secret. And, and I think the difference between how things worked in the U.S. and how things worked in, in USSR had a lot to do with this kind of like secret. And, and it's about the mentality of the free world, if you wish. You know, I have to say that this is what I, I, I found out through my research is just this this way in which the U.S. is, is dealing with um, um, is dealing even you know with, with technology that um, allowed I think space research to be at the level that it is today. And then people from the communist bloc would see papers that were published, right? That were it's really available online. Yes, you have to pay, but you don't have to kill someone to, to be able to read them or, or um, be afraid that you're going to be killed if you talk about it. And this is, this is the reality that we grew up in, you know, and we have to talk about these differences in, in between the two worlds because I don't know how many people know about it. Well, no, you have a very unique personal perspective on that. I mean, certainly where you grew up in that time and place, that's really interesting to hear that perspective. Um, so it, it, as I'm thinking about, you know, what you identify as differences between, you know, the, the American-European approach and maybe what, you know, the Soviet uh, communist approach, are these things like, um, like NASA hiring contractors and technology transfers and things like that that make space exploration directly relevant to the public? And are these the kinds of things that you don't really see in, in, in communist-type space programs? Yeah, it's like, you know, like contractors, like, are you kidding me? I have never heard in my childhood of anything like this in, in, in back home. And for me, just the idea that someone can actually go and take a project from the government and go and develop it was extraordinary. So then it got me thinking. And to me, I believe like today that this is the the reason why space, the institutionalization of space exceeded. And here is another another definition. You know, people talk a lot about going to space, and most of the time space has been linked to military, and, and like maybe 80% of, especially for 
for me, coming again, I'm relating this to my my background from that part of the world that I'm from. But for us, space was military, and and that was it. There was nothing else out there. There was no no civilian space research, and. I mean, yes, there were some people looking at the sky with the telescopes, but they were just like insignificant, and that didn't matter. It didn't count as space research. And and so, in in the Western world, it, it was the other way around. People would would um, would take contracts and they would develop them, and this this contributed to 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 promoting to to getting this forward. And and so, in this. Um, what I'm saying in my in my research is that I personally believe that the institutionalization of space research has actually been made possible just after people had the choice of choosing to do space research for peaceful purposes. Because before that, you were doing space research, but you were doing it because you had to have a, a war advantage over someone else. Right. So that was, to me, personally, that was part of the machine of war the before. Whereas as soon as people had the choice to say, oh, let's go and explore this, I don't know, moon of Saturn just because we can and just because we want to and there is no race involved, there is nothing there, we don't want to conquer it, we don't want to put the flag in first, we just want to know what's behind Titan's haze, right, in the atmosphere. That's extraordinary. That is true institutionalization. That is when humankind was able to, to choose its future. And that's the beauty of, of being and having this in an institution, because that supports the peaceful research of space, right? Whereas imagine this was, was done under, under the machinery of war, war. Yeah, that makes perfect sense. So with, with NASA being an agency whose goal is specifically the peaceful human exploration of space. Uh, yeah, that differs very much so from, well, the legacy of space exploration really it came from rocketry and radar and a lot of the machine of war is what led to what we now have as peaceful space exploration. Um, one of the quotations you talk about uh, that you mentioned in your discussion is the idea of, of NASA being a technocracy in the sense of this institution that is designed to systematically generate new knowledge and improve upon technology. Um, I thought that was a really interesting way of putting it. And uh, it made me just think about what other institutions there are other than NASA that really do that. NASA might be one of the very few. But this is very interesting. And um, if, if we go back again, step, step back again, NASA is a civil institution, is a government um, machinery. I work the government too here in New Zealand. It's interesting to see how how actually government operates and and uh, and how we do that. But here is the thing: NASA was not created for space. It's, it's very interesting. NASA was created to make sure that disasters like Sputnik doesn't happen. That that was a very interesting definition, and NASA was was made in in response to to a threat and it's it's this beautiful discussion about um i was talking to to a friend of mine here in new zealand the other day and we were talking about serendipity when when you start doing things and then 
something else happens in the chain of events and then you end up doing something completely different than what you have planned on the beginning. And this is true science. This is true, true development. So, so NASA being formed um, was, was made with this system thinking in, in mind. And there's a beautiful, there are beautiful papers written by Rand that was, uh, as it is, that is a think tank there, there in the U.S. that are, are looking at the general picture. And what struck me was the fact that it, it takes system thinking to go to space and it takes system thinking to go to war, right? So there are these two, two parallel things, two most important things to, to, uh, to develop space research and, and go to war. So then the war knowledge was transferred into the system thinking, and it came with a lot of technological development. That's why these authors, they're, they're calling it a technocracy. It's, you know, it's, it's putting technology and, and the development of research in, um, I don't know, in everything in science to, to serve the state. And it was a visionary thing that uh, they've done it. And, and again, the, the think tank of, of RAND has helped because RAND has produced that very, very famous report in, I think it was 1940. Six when when they when they said that the U.S. should put a satellite in space and and, and nothing happened right for many years and then Sputnik came and it is true that you know society today is conducive to to technology we are technology and we are information and we have to deal with it because we are making history every single day of our life we haven't done these things before. It's not like we know what we're doing. We don't. And it's, it's up to us to find this equilibrium. It's, it's up to us to find the best way to move forward. But I don't think we can move forward unless we have an ideal. And, and what that ideal, you know, I think this is something we need to, to, to think about and, and collectively um, engage. I really like that. So, um I guess one of the other things I think about is, you know, NASA has no shortage of critics, of course, and, you know, anytime there's a disaster, you know, the, the uh, Challenger, the Columbia shuttle, things like that, um, you know, there's, there's a, a big, there's a public connection to NASA and so there's public outcry when there's disasters like that. Um, does this show fundamental weaknesses in the institutionalization of NASA or is this really showing us that space exploration is still very high risk? And how, more generally, how do we interpret, you know, NASA's failures in these cases as, what does that mean for the future of, of other space institutions? This is a very good question. Thank you for this question. I, I really like it because when I started doing this thesis, my supervisor came to me and she said, I want to know, and I want you to to, um, to tell me why is it that NASA stopped doing space research, and why is it that that is not doing research as, as it used to do in in the Apollo era? What happened there? And and I thought about it, and you know, like to me, it was this finding our feet problem. But then once I started looking more into into the nature of things, I realized that we shouldn't even be concerned with whether we would be or NASA would be going back to moon first or, or what's going to happen because what they've done there, so, so NASA started in a process that was, make, let's make sure 
that disasters like Sputnik don't happen. So this was the, the very first task of NASA, right? Now that's a very big difference between that and, say, for instance, astrobiology, which now comes with questions like, what is life? What is the future of humankind, right? So these are completely, completely different, different questions. And I think that NASA has made possible for humankind to kind of lift off the ground. This is what their merit is. And it didn't do it. I don't believe that NASA did it because really, really wanted to do it. It was not like on their agenda when they were first born. I mean, it was very clear. Disasters like Sputnik shouldn't happen. But in the process, somewhere, something happened that actually changed the course of space research and, and, and how we see space. And I believe, this is what my, uh, my research showed me, I believe that what happened was, A, this, this amazing way of the, of the U.S. and of the free world to, to give free reign to people, to take the development of technology. The, the government comes and makes an infrastructure, and there are examples in there like the, the railroad or the telephony. You know, see, these things in the communist block we've never heard about. And so then people develop the technology because they care about because they have a vested interest. So NASA had the infrastructure for space, but then something happened in the process, and because it's so hard to go to space, they came, they came with a lot of innovation back, and they're like, all right, how do we make these gloves to fit perfectly? How do we protect people from vacuum? How do we make sure they survive on the, on the space station? So all these questions that they had to resolve in going to space because they had to make a race, these like a byproduct, I believe that these were the keys that institutionalized Based research in, in the true meaning of the word. So then having that under uh, under the belt, that allowed humankind to start thinking. And there there were people who were seeing benefits in this. My my favorite um, discovery is this um, face cream. It's a, it's a beauty cream. It's called Rejuvel, and it's on the NASA spin-offs. And it makes women look younger and men look younger. And I think it's an extraordinary discovery. So this is something out of the blue. Um, that has maybe you say has nothing to do with space research, right? It's just in the beauty and, and cosmetics industry. But you know what? I'm very happy it happened, and 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 um, I'm, I'm, I'd be very happy to you know give it a try and invest and buy it and and make sure that you know because that that that's what promotes humans are humans, right? Um, these these space spin-offs, and this is just an example, and, and I, I thought it was, a, it was an interesting and a funny one, right, because it, it just shows our humanity, if you wish, and, and quest in, in very different directions. But but I think that's what NASA did. And I don't think we should expect anything from NASA, really. NASA is a government um, department. Now, every government department, and again, I'm working in one of them, has bureaucracy. It has bureaucracy because it inherited a certain way of dealing with things. And I think this was, to answer your question, maybe the doom and the, the very good part about space being directed from an institution like NASA that belongs to the government because it had rules, it had regulations. But on the other hand, on the other hand being a government department, it had too many of them. So what we're dealing with here in the government, and I, I believe this is the situation, I don't, I, don't, I don't know if there is any, any government in the world who doesn't have this, is hierarchy. And how do you communicate on, on a hierarchy? See, you have top-down, but then you have the layers, and how do people relate to each other? What are the channels? 
because nobody kind of really knows in a, in a way, and, and that's another um, very interesting discussion. Now, again, we're making history. We are now collaborating. I'm collaborating with peers from from other government departments in, in here in my country, and I'm talking to them directly. And I think to myself, this is really cool. I can talk to someone freely about these these problems that we're facing, and I don't have to go to my boss to allow me to talk to that person. Right now. Think about this. In a communist country, this is unheard of. You don't talk to anyone. It's almost like bureaucracy and institutionalization is kind of coming from a military hierarchy. And what we're doing now, we're diffusing that. We're diffusing that, and we're kind of like shifting it and, and putting it into the networking. And that, that, um, that's another interesting subject, the, the future of humankind. Is in, is in many, many ways of organization, but one of them which arose after Internet was put out there, it's networking. And networking gives you the ability to, to communicate with, with uh, communities of interest. So you've got a community of practice, and overall you have a community of interest. And I give this as an example. I give astrobiology as an example. Astrobiology is an umbrella, and it, it contains people who are very active in different disciplines, and we all form a community of interest in, in this astrobiology field. Um, so, so again, coming back to the question, I, I, yes, there were flaws, there were disasters, there was the challenger, it's true, there were all those um, other issues. But it's not just that communication, it's not, it's not just, you know, people learn from mistakes, and it's sad that we do that, but, but sometimes, in, in the process, this is what happened. I think the the key today is how we react to those mistakes, right? Whereas I, I don't think in the past, if someone died, anyone would have made such a big fuss, right? And even in the recent past, in go back again in Romania and Russia, people were training to become astronauts. People were dying, you know? A lot of technology was failing. People were dying, and, and it, it, people really didn't care. But what I liked about NASA and, and their approach was that they care about people. They care about safety. They are coming up with ways of making sure that every single life matters, that every single thing that is happening there um, in space is taken care of in, um, in a proper way. And, and, and people are, are taken care of. Life is the most important, individual life, if you wish, is the most important thing for, for, for this kind of research. And I think this is, this is extraordinary, you know, coming, coming from a country where humans were expandable to, to this philosophy that every single life is important and we must make sure that, that we're, we're taking care of it. And that's why there was such a big fuss made about these um, uh, disasters. Right? And I think this is great. It's great that people are thinking like that because we, every single one of us are unique and every single one of us has this enormous potential and we can individually contribute to, to this humankind um, knowledge. So, okay. Well, thank you for that. So, you've definitely convinced me that, that the institution of NASA has done actually really really good job in some ways I hadn't thought about before of, of uh, I guess, approaching the system, of doing a systems approach to space exploration. So the, the one question I'm left with is to what, 
what are the lingering security uh, aspects of NASA? To, to what extent does NASA still have a role in securitization? What I'm thinking is, suppose that China gets off the ground and starts a real hum, uh, human Mars exploration program. Would that kind of event today have the same impact that the launch of Sputnik had uh, in the 60s? And would, would NASA then be revitalized, do you think, in a way that is responding more to security concerns than science if, if we perceived, for example, China to be a competitor? Mm. Um, that's a good question again. Well, let's talk a little bit about securitization and what does it mean. And securitization is a, is a process, just like, like institutionalization. And it, it's got three things. You need three things to, to do securitization. You need a reference object. And what's a reference object? It's, it's that which is in danger, right? So in, in classical security, the reference object is the state. Then you need an actor. We call them actors or an agent that says, hey, this reference object is in danger of something happening to it, right? And if we don't take such and such action, this and this will happen, so it's all in the future tense. And then the third thing you need for securitization is an audience. And i give you an example of securitization. It's when President Kennedy went and did the speech to the Congress. He had, so the, the, referent, the referent object was the freedom, the, as, as value from which which was threatened by by the communism, the so he was the actor. Then the audience was the Congress, right? He didn't go there to say, "Hey, can we have some money to do some research and development to go to the moon because it's really cool and we we really want to do some research and want to find out about you know these rocks and how we were we were made and and what life about." He, he he never said that, but he said. We need to to be free, and we need to make sure that the Russians don't um, don't win this race. So, this is very very important. Now, security has been developing as well because everything um, is, is um, every single institution and security is an institution too, if you wish, is is developing. And some institutions fail. Some institutions they just seems to exist because they're not viable. Some institutions are viable, which is why I'm I'm always saying you know. Space may or may not be or it may take another approach to go there but but we're on the beginning we're we're still finding our feet we we haven't even planned to go to space for science uh, i mean in, in the normal day and age i mean yes leonardo da vinci dreamed about uh, jules Verne dreamed about um, robert goddard herman Albert, and and uh constantine Tarkovsky, they, they dreamed about going to space to, to do science right but then they were very few at the time Whereas now we, we can actually achieve that. So, so securitization also goes through changes and transformation. And before, when we had the Cold War, when we had the real, you know, the World War on, on that time, securitization was about state. So the state was the most important reference object, right? Now, in this day and age, things have changed. And the scholars that are doing international security, they're obviously arguing. And, and there is this, they're pushing to, to extend the purpose, the scope of the reference object. So now you have the reference object as being the environment, and the environment is uh, under threat from climate change. 
uh, you can say the reference object is Earth if you think about like an asteroid disaster and the planetary protection, uh, sorry, planetary defense side of, uh, of, of the things, right? But this is another um, reference object. But what I found that these scholars argue is that after the, after the, the, the Cold War was over, the most important thing in securitization is actually diffusing. So in order to keep things secure, the most important key is de-securitization, right? And this is where I think NASA has a role. And I'm, again, I'm saying that, you know, NASA, I don't think NASA plans to be the savior of the world. I don't think NASA really planned, I mean, truly and honestly, I don't think they were uh, planning to, to from the beginning to do this. It, it's obvious from all the materials and data that I, I have researched that they were there to make sure that the Russians don't don't get ahead in, in, the, in the race that was. But as I was saying before, in the process, something happened, and because they gave this knowledge to people, it was it was not NASA that made this possible. It was the people who made it possible because they they said, oh, you know what? I love space. Let's think about this. Let's do more space. Let's let's engage more in this. But what NASA did, it provided a framework under which these developments were possible. Because it's one thing is for just like individual people and we're like running around and I'm like, I'm very passionate about space. It's really, really cool. I talk about space all the time, but I don't have any framework. I really wish I could contribute, but I don't know how. Whereas here is a project, here is a space spin-off, let's develop it. Let's go plant in space, right? That's something I'm interested in. Let's go plant in space, let's see how they work, how they're doing. So you already have something concrete that, that people can relate to rather than just an ideal. So, so I think in, in, the, in terms of desecuritization, it's giving people to think about, something to think about, right? So what about instead of going to war and, and doing all those wars around the world and, and doing drug traffic and, um, you know, all the atrocities that are happening around the world, we could give people something to think about. And, and you know, um, they can think about anything from how they can make beauty creams to how they can, I don't know, it's, it's like, what's in it for me? What's in it for me? And if you can touch that chord in, in, in people's hearts and, and they can they can see the benefits, then then I think your desecuritization is kind of like happening. So instead of thinking about war, and again, institutionalization and securitization are really um, kind of like top-level processes. It's not you and I as a, a person that are dealing with it, but they're dealt out with at, at the level of state or at the level of, of enterprise or organization. But securitization especially is dealt with at the level of state. So 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 this is yeah, this is like kind of like how do we diffuse it? You know, if there are less people in taking the war you know, like what happened in France? We all know what happened. What just happened in France? So, it's, it's, how do we defeat that? What, what? How can we prevent that 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 thing from happening? You know, if we if we present science to kids and engage them in science and get them to think about how they can make the world a better place, maybe they will stop fighting with each other. Maybe they will stop arguing, and maybe their attention will be on something else. Whereas a lot of people's attention right now is on conflict and who's right. You know. Right, and that's a good. It's a good point. Who's right? But is it really that important, or is it more important to understand these fundamental questions? Like, 
you know, what is life and, and, and who are we? Because that's what the actual space is trying to, to answer. So coming back to, to this referent object, right? What's the referent object? What is the, the value that the institutional space is trying to protect? What is it? You know, that, that's a very, very good question. And I personally believe it's, it's life, human life. How do we survive? We're, we're amazing, amazing. I, I, I love all the time. I, I, I love to think about people and, and what is the universe we have inside ourselves. And we can create so much beauty in the world and, and so many bad things as well. But, but it's all part of our human nature and, and who we are. And I, I would love to, to see that this survives. And I think that to date, the space institutions in its entirety is the most qualified um, institution to take this forward. Now, yes, there would be competition. The people going to, to Mars now, the, the new Mars race instead of the, the moon race, I don't know, is it, not the same. It's, it's not the same as in the Apollo time because the Apollo time was totally or, or um, mostly militarized, militarized. So that's why I said in, in my research that I believe that the institution of space research actually took off after the civilian space research was possible. But, like, if we look at China, you know, China wants to get a spot in there. So this is competition between states. So this is where securitization comes in. You can see, you know, China as a state wants to go to Mars. It's not China as part of the United Nations want to go to Mars. They want to go to Mars and climb a spot for themselves. And, you know, I don't think work, things will work like this. I think things would work when people will, you know, a Chinese person and, and a Romanian person and a U.S. person and a, I don't know, New Zealand person who work together in a network and, and think about, right, how can we get to Mars? What, what's the best way to get there? You know, what, what, why, why should we compete? We shouldn't compete. We should, we should work together. Um, but I think, again, it, it, and it's an interesting, uh, Ran has awesome papers. I, I love reading their papers, and they talk about this networking. And, and networking, uh, I think, is the key, the key for the future. Because networking allows people to share the same values. You know, you're not compelled to listen to your mom when she tells you, you know, whatever she, she wants you to do, right? You can go and um, chat with your friend online and say, oh, I don't want to do this, and what do you think? So, so it creates a, uh, it opens up. Networking opens up uh, space for people who have the same ideals, who have the same, um, they're, they're convinced that they have to do the, the same thing. It's shared common values in an unprecedented way, in an unprecedented way. And although I think there would be states that would compete like India, is going out there, and this is really good. Um, it's good that there is good when there is competition. Competition creates progress. But I think still that that the future of humankind will, will lay in networks, and I think it's up to us as um, leaders of of this kind of like new world to see in the future and kind of come up, come up with what is the best way to make sure that these people not only can talk about themselves, because if, if you wish like that, they can go to conventions, they can go to society meetings, you know. But what is the framework that we can provide for these people, we as an organization can provide for these people to engage them in their um, interaction to, to, to promote humanity for it? And one, one answer might be citizen science, right? 
Um, another answer is, is true research and development where, where you do this as a job um, from whatever, 24-7, right? I don't know what's the answer, but I think this is the question. <laughs> well, thank you. I, I really like this idea that um, that space exploration is maybe one of the best poised institutions to try to usher in you know, some sort of new era of, of a peaceful vision for the world. I mean, I don't want to get too optimistic that we're going to achieve world peace by sending people into space, but I, I completely agree that that's a very needed perspective and that, if anything, maybe space exploration holds some of the keys to make some of that happen. I really like the idea yeah. that space exploration, which, which really emerged from the machine of war, perhaps could be used to undo some of that damage. Um, so any final questions for Hari? It's been a really great conversation. Uh, Sandri, did you have any anything to add? Uh, it's, it's hard to follow up Hari's discussion on the on her, her optimism is really contagious. <laughs> uh, thank, you for, thank you for that, Hari. Um, perhaps the th the one thought I wanted to add to the distinction of the success of institutionalization versus securitization is perhaps the fact that in institutionalization, the, the let's see the roots of the economy of space weave in much further into the local economy of a locality of a country than do more secure type environments. As in for, for NASA, you have very large amount of contractors who themselves have subcontractors. So the, the, the economy the economy that drives the space program is actually very hard to quantify because it is so weaved into the economy of the of the country. I mean, you have the, your little parts supplier down the road providing parts to this company that provides hardware to, to NASA, you know, so it's extremely broad. And perhaps that, that builds a much stronger route for this long duration success of a space program. So there's just some additional thoughts on, 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 on the benefit of institutionalization versus security. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I, I agree. I agree. I think this is the future. And that's why I also agree with that statement that says the future is in desecuritization and defusing and it's commerce, it's trade, is people taking their faith in their own hands and saying, Well, if we wanna do more science, we want more research, we want more I mean who who doesn't want to leave forever, right? Right. So what are you, what is your perspective then on the on the on the emerging Chinese space program, which is a communist country, but I think they're not I don't really know. Maybe they're not as secure as the former Soviet program, um, secure being in a sense of securitization, like you were saying. But perhaps you have some well, perspective on on the Chinese program. There is an interesting there is an interesting book um, about the Chinese fleet that was um, I think it was in 1400 and this general when when the Chinese sent this general to to navigate and. In 1400 or 1300, around that time, they had the most advanced fleet in the world. They had huge ships. They had amazing navigation capabilities. They were the Chinese were the best navigators in the world, and they made it almost all the way around Africa, if I'm not mistaken. And when they got almost to discover Europe there was something happened in China and the emperor was overthrown and some other emperor came in and um, he wanted to build an irrigation dam and he didn't really care about um, exploration and so they 
um, they kind of like defer to bureaucracy. That's why I'm like saying here bureaucracy versus institutionalization are kind of like two different things. And I think bureaucracy is the bad guy. It, it was a good guy for a while, but, but that's the bad, the real bad guy is, is bureaucracy and not institutionalization. And so, so they were called back. And then a few years later, another emperor came in, and then they sent the fleet again, and they constructed the fleet again, and then they went into exploration, and then they were called back. And, and that stuck with me, that image of, of this humongous fleet. At the time, Europe couldn't even build any. There were, you know, Europe was, was consumed by war in 1300, 1400, couldn't even move. And, and let alone travel, and then the Portuguese started traveling a little bit, but none of those ships from Europe compared to, to the magnificence of the Chinese fleet, yet they failed to discover Europe, or, you know, to, they didn't want to, they, they, they said, that emperor said that he actually didn't need to go and do these discoveries, but all he wanted was that his irrigation dam was better than uh, some other irrigation things, and he was self-sufficient, and he was he was very happy. So, so it comes again to I think to geography and how people are ingrained in their culture in China and uh, you know even Romania. We have a lot of rules. I kind of like ran away from from home. I didn't run away from home. I, I I'm in a learning process. But if you wish. I ran away from those rules because they were so oppressive that I didn't I didn't understand at the time what I was doing. But then that's the beauty of the free world. You, you go in another country, and you know how people say, like Italians and you know the Latin people, like Romanians, everyone. Um, you've got this 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 mother figure all the time that tells you what to do and tells you how to behave and tells you what to wear and tells you what to talk about, and so. People in the free world kind of like run away from that. It run away. They run away from the cultural oppression of so many rules. And these rules were good. That's what I think culture is. It's just a set of rules because these rules were keeping you alive in that geographical, particular geographical condition where you were from. But then, if you go to a different environment, you have to behave differently, and it takes a long time to kind of like make sense of that. Like I'm here in New Zealand, and we're celebrating Christmas in, in the summertime, and it's just for me, it's just outrageous, right? I, I, I can't process it. My my brain, can, yeah, can't process it. So imagine people go to another geography, and all of a sudden, those rules that keep you alive in your country are not good anymore. Like if you go in Sahara, for instance, in the middle in the middle of the desert, and you try to eat pork. You die because it's toxic, you know, not not because it's uh, it's holy or sacred or you know, um, it is it is toxic to the humans to consume pork in such high temperatures. But these rules are so old that they're now ingrained in, in these cultural um, ways of of doing things. So for space, you know, for for us to go into space, we will have to shed all that programming, and that's the hardest thing because it comes back to biases. And it comes back to survival. And when something is in your brain because it's been ingrained in your survival mechanism, it's really, really hard to, to shed. And it's really, really hard to see the other side of the coin as well. All right. Well, Harry, thank you very much. This has been a really, really fun conversation. Definitely given me a lot to think about. Um, so I wish you the best of luck as you keep as you continue your research, as you finish finish up your uh, master's project. We're definitely looking forward to seeing how that takes shape. 
Um, thank so thanks you. again for joining us. Listeners, thank you for tuning in. This has been Blue SciCon. You can again check us out online at bmsis.org slash podcast. This will be our last episode for 2015. So we will see you next year. Thanks again. Thank you.